the, the, the chapter that's so famous because of the word love, the love chapter in the Bible. And it's uh, really there to reflect God's love, a, a kind of love that is selfless, that's giving, that's not the kind of love that we're used to in the world. You know, we use the word love in the world where sometimes we actually mean lust. You know, I love you, which means I want your body. Uh, we use the word love uh, sometimes that, that in, in ways that say, uh, I, 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 I like what you do to me. You know, how many of the songs that, you know, I'm, I, I listen to 50s music all the time. I'm sorry, I am really old. But, but you know, there, there's a song I was listening to the other day. Uh, I, I can't remember the exact, or even who sang it. But the, the lyrics were, I, I love you just the way you are. Well, are any of you the way you were when you were 19 or 17 or 16? I certainly am not. Um, you, you, you know, th those, those are unrealistic uh, expectations. Uh, there's a kind of love that says, be nice to me and I'll be nice to you. Uh, but that's just a trade. That, that's not real love. Love is the kind of thing that reflects what the Lord did for us, and that's to love us when we're unlovely, to love us when we're not deserving of love, to be patient and kind with us uh, when the natural response would be, uh, I'll, I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. I'm going to be nasty to you if you're nasty to me. And so love comes along, and in and, and, and God's love, this word agape that's used in the Scripture raises the bar really high, and yet this is really what it's all about to be a Christian. The Bible says we, we, we couldn't even love God if he didn't first love us. It's, it's our, our love for God doesn't come from us. It's a response to him loving us and, and showing himself to us. And then uh, the, Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? I mean, what's the heart of the matter here? What's going to get me through life? Love God with all your heart and soul and your mind and your strength. And then he quickly said, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the guy goes, you know, gives him a little grief about it that was arguing with him. And Jesus comes back and, and he goes, here's who your neighbor is. And, and he tells a story of racial strife. And the guy that's talking to him, he says, here's a guy who's unlike you, and I know you don't like these kind of people, and yet here's the good he did for some of your, one of your people that don't like him. And so this overcoming of natural feelings, uh, that's what love is all about, that I'm going to give myself away, I'm going to lay my life down for you, even though I don't think that you're worthy of it. And so there's a higher kind of love. It starts out by saying, let me show you a way of life that is best of all. 1 Corinthians 12 uh, actually starts in, in, in the, 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 the last part of the last chapter. And, and it rolls over. It says, let me show you a way of life that is best of all. And he says, if I can speak all the languages of earth and of angels. Now, he's talking about what the Bible calls in, in other translations, speaking in tongues. God giving you a supernatural language to praise the Lord in, to, in, in, in prayer. And he's saying human language because sometimes people have spoken in tongues and other people have understood them that came from other countries. Or the language of angels. Whatever it is, if I had, if I had this spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, but I didn't love others, well, I'd only be making noise. I'd be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy... I could come and I could speak God's, he says, I understood all of God's secret plans. If I possessed all knowledge, 
And he's talking there about a word of knowledge, God giving you a special understanding of things that you wouldn't know otherwise. If I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave all that I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could brag about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. See, we've been talking for the last two weeks about spiritual gifts, about God coming along and, and supernaturally empowering us to do things in serving others that, that are his grace. And there's a scripture that says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. In other words, if God gifts you in a certain way, he doesn't back off from the gift, even if you misuse it. And so here's a chapter, as, as it starts out talking, that reflects those spiritual gifts. And it says, if you actually do things and even miraculous things happen through your life, but you're a person that has no love in your life, well, then it's, it's meaningless. It's, it's like clanging gong. It's just it's empty noise. It doesn't really count for anything. And, and, and your life really counts for nothing. You've gained nothing. So God is calling us to live our lives in our families. And, you know, I, 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 I saw a thing. I, I'm old enough that I get the AARP magazine. And I, I saw an article in there about how to cope with divorce after age 50. But I'm thinking, cope, man. You're going to have to cope with life after age 50 if you get a divorce. Uh, you know, you know you, you're, you're going to end up with half of everything that you had together. Uh, you're starting all over. It, it, it's, what, wouldn't it be much easier just to lay down the sword and love each other and, and, to, and, and to stop holding little grudges and whatever you're doing and just be together? Uh, it, it, it just makes no sense at all to me to, to think of somebody... Uh, I mean, divorce doesn't make any sense anyway. But uh, divorce, when you're uh, getting up there in years, it's like, good night. You're confining your, your life to, to loneliness. It's, it's, it's tragic. It's really tragic. And so without love, we have gained nothing. You know, it's, 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 it's God's love that's reflected in us, and, and it's self-sacrificing, uh, it, and, and, and yet it's self-sacrificing in a way that is is giving. You know, you can be self-sacrificing and it can turn to pride. You know, you can give everything you have away and then be bragging about it and, and then you, it just kind of nullifies everything that God wants to do. But sometimes love is a battlefield. Sometimes love is, uh, there's a personal battle that goes on. You know, I, it's hard to love people sometimes. Uh, I, I think of my own self. It must be hard for my wife to love me. We were, we were asked the question tonight, uh, what, what, what was the question? What, what makes you really impatient? Uh, the, the thing that, that I, I'm writing a book about anxiety, and it, it's not impatient. I, I wrote a sentence in the book that says, uh, the most hateful thing in my life is packing for trips. I still have a little bit of craziness up here. And it, it, I, I have to go on a trip. I'm leaving tomorrow or day after tomorrow for New Zealand. I'll miss one Saturday night. I'll be back here the next Saturday. Uh, I could go directly there, and I would have to miss two weekends from church by flying directly to New Zealand because the, the direct airlines don't fly that often. Uh, by flying to San Francisco, then to Sydney, then to Auckland, uh, I, can, I can just have to miss one weekend. So I'm, I'm, it's like going to Eastern Europe to just get to New Zealand. Um, but packing, I, I, I packed yesterday. You know, I, I, I thought I'm going to get ahead of this thing because... 
when I'm packing, I, I start to do this part, and then, oh, I remember I got to go over here and get this, and, and now I'm doing this, and oh, I got to go over here and do, and, and, and it makes me crazy. I, I'm serious. The multitasking makes me crazy. And it's really weird. Yesterday, I packed in about an hour. Used to be, I'd pack in a half hour. I'd get up early in the morning, gonna go off someplace, slam it all together, and out the door. And, and now, it's, I, my mind can't cope with it. And sometimes, it'll take me four hours to do the thing that I did yesterday in, in less than an hour. And meantime, I'm running around the house like a crazy idiot, and she's having to live with me. See, sometimes love is a battlefield within your own self, that you've got to overcome your own natural sort of impulses, uh, human impulses, in, in order to do the thing that's called love, to give yourself to somebody else. It says here, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. Not jealous of what somebody else has, boastful about what you've done or what you have, or proud. Uh, love is not rude. It's interesting, the word proud uh, occurs only seven times in the whole New Testament, and six times are in the books of First and Second Corinthians. In other words, the church at Corinth had all the pride problems. They had all the spiritual gifts, and that's why he's writing this. They, they had a lot of miraculous going on, but they had a lot of pride over it, and so uh, Paul rails on them for their, their pride. Uh, love is not rude. The, the church at Corinth, uh, they were battling each other, and they were, they were in, in partisanship. I follow this guy, I follow this guy, and, and they were at war with each other. They, they were rude to each other. Uh, love does not demand its own way. Love is willing to let the other person choose. Uh, love is not irritable. In other words, it's not easily inflamed. You know, uh, Sometimes we, we just get to the point where uh, we're a little ragged, we're a little tired, our, our, our nerves are on edge. It becomes a battle to get yourself under control and be an easy person to be around and live with. Love is not easily irritated. Love keeps no record of being wronged. R love does not keep a file cabinet in the back of its brain that's filled with all the things that you did to me and, and, and I'm going to carry a grudge about it. Love does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never lines up with people for the sake of lining up with people who've got the power or whatever and, and lines up with injustice. Love is looking for uh, reality and honesty and the truth to come out in somebody's life. Love never gives up. In other words, you, you, you may be unkind to me, but I'm going to be kind to you. I, I'm going to continue to hold you in some sort of esteem. I may have to hold you at a distance, but I'm going to hold you in some esteem. Um, love never loses faith. There's trust that God is always going to be there and that God can change situations that seem hopeless. Love is always hopeful. Love endures through every circumstance. Love can be a battle, but love can prevail if we choose to allow it to prevail in our heart before we want it to prevail in our relationships. Am I making sense when I say this? It's actually pretty simple, but it's very difficult. Pretty simple, but very difficult. Here's some companion scriptures. In Proverbs chapter 10, it says, hatred stirs up quarrels, but love makes up for all offenses. There's another scripture that says, 
that love covers all things. You know, there, there, there's a way of love just absorbing the blow. You know, how, how, how many times when you were a, a parent and you had young kids, like junior, age, junior high age kids, and they, and they acted badly toward you, and your love had to absorb the, the punches they were throwing your way. Their immaturity was being acted out at your expense, and so you had to be the person that had the, enough grace that you allowed your grace to, to cover for the offenses that they were making toward you. Uh, if we could learn to do that with our kids, and then we could learn to do that with the people at work, uh, we'd be miles down the road. Or sometimes learn to do that with our spouses. Uh, we could save a marriage, save a family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, he says, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. In other words, this becomes a matter uh, that, that you, you need to, you know, you need to get stuff dealt with and, you know, kindness has to prevail. We've got to get to that point where kindness prevails. Paul talks about his own life in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, about the sacrifices that he makes for the sake of the gospel. And he is living in a world that is filled with all kinds of tension. There's racial tension. There's class tension. We talked about this last week a little bit. There's, there, there's, there's whole racial issues going on, but there's people who are slave people. There are people who are free people. There are people who are power people. Um, and, and, and so Paul says, even though I am a free man. Now, when we hear the word freedom, we all live in America, and, and, and the, the word doesn't mean so much to us. You know, I, I can remember when I was a child in school, and uh, I, I was a child in school in the shadow of World War II. I was born at the very end of the war, and the world almost lost its freedom. I, I, I don't think that we have any idea. Sometimes when I look at the news and I read a lot of history, I, I, I think we have no idea how quickly the guy in Venezuela or Iran could turn into another Germany. You know, Germany conquered Poland, or little Czechoslovakia, and then they conquered Poland, and very quickly they recruited all the factories of those countries and they recruited a, a bunch of those people as slaves and soldiers. And suddenly the army grew, the, the ability to make war grew, and then they, they, they conquer another nation. And everywhere that they conquered, their ability to make war grew. And this is why it turned into a world war. Germany is physically the size of the state of Oregon, and it has uh, about twice the population in the state of California. But very quickly, this thing turned into this monster. And so the whole world was arrayed trying to tame the monster and protect freedom, the kind of freedom that we just so easily take for granted, you know, the, the freedom to be able to, 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 to vote for who you want to vote for or to criticize your government and not worry that somebody's going to haul you off in the middle of the night. Uh, I, I was with some friends in Ukraine recently. Carl and I were there on a trip, and we were talking to people who had grown up in the Soviet era and whose parents had grown up in the Nazi era, and they were Jewish people. And I was with one guy whose grandfather was in Buchenwald, and he somehow lived through the war, had the tattoos on his arms, the whole thing was scheduled to die. And he lived through the war, and, and he told his grandson stories about this. And, and then all, all of the people that I was with in the room, there were like three or four of us in the room, maybe five of us in the room, three of them were, were Ukrainians, and they were all Jewish people. 
and every one of them had a story of some family friend, neighbor, or family person who had been hauled away in the middle of the night during the Soviet era and never heard from again. And so, you know, we think of the word freedom, and it doesn't really mean a lot to us. It's just, you know, I'm free to make choices. Uh, freedom is a precious thing. In the ancient Roman world, uh, most of the people were slaves. And so freedom was a huge thing. Paul says, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. I have chosen to live a different lifestyle than is available to me in order that I can bring people to Christ. He goes on and says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring Jews to Christ. In other words, he had come into freedom in Christ and a, a kind of freedom that, that he knew that he was out from under all the religious rules of, 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 of Judaism. But he said, when I'm with Jewish people, I voluntarily submit to all those religious rules. I do all that stuff in order that I can be able to bring some of those people to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this to bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not live according to the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. And then he says, when I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything that I can to save some. You know, when he talks about the weak, uh, later on in, in the, the book of Corinthians, in the book of Romans, he actually calls people spiritually weak because they have an overactive conscience. They're worried that they might be eating meat, and this isn't a thing that we're going to face today, but, but it is a thing we're going to face today. They're worried that they might be eating meat that was butchered at the local temple of the pagan god and then sold in the meat market. And so they got a conscience that says, don't eat that meat. And so if there's some place and there's just meat and they don't know where it came from, they're going to probably say, I'm not eating the meat because it might have come from the temple. Well, Paul is a guy who's free in Christ, and he knows that the temple thing is no big deal. It doesn't really matter. He could eat the meat or not eat the meat. It's up to him. He'll choose to not eat the meat so he doesn't bum out the conscience of those people. Am I making sense? You know, we, we face it today sometimes. Uh, I, I, I've been a little bit convicted. I have a friend who's a vegetarian. I have several friends who are vegetarians, but I have a friend who is an irate vegetarian. <laughs> and he really gets fired up when I say the word McDonald's. <laughs> and uh, for a little while, it, it became kind of a contest to say the word McDonald's as much as I could in front of him, you know. And uh, I used to be a real McDonald's freak. I, I used to be I, I would eat at least, out of 21 meals a week, I would eat at least seven of them at McDonald's. Uh, I like the place. Uh, but time is catching up with me, and so I, I, I rarely eat at McDonald's anymore. But whenever I'd be around this guy, I'd start bragging about McDonald's. And then I started thinking, he's, he's really serious about what he believes. I don't believe what he believes, but he's my friend. And so I'm going to lay off the McDonald's stuff 
so I don't bum him out. Now, actually, if I was sitting down talking to him and we were talking about these scriptures, I would probably say to him, why don't you lay off the rampant vegetarianism when you're with people like me? I mean, it goes both ways. I wouldn't ask him to go to McDonald's with me. You know, Paul says I do all this to win some. Uh, but, but I wouldn't, but, but I would actually tell him as a Christian brother, you ought to pipe down just a little bit about this, but I'd have to look in the mirror and tell me I need to pipe down when I'm around him. There, 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 there comes a point where you're going to make a sacrifice to the other person. Now, we're talking about lightweight stuff here. But there's heavyweight stuff that goes on in all of our lives. And there's flashpoints in people's lives. And we need to be careful how we conduct ourselves so that we're not ticking somebody else off. Um, he, he's saying here he's doing this so he can win people to Christ. He's willing to make himself a slave to other people and their feelings so he can win them to Christ. But he's also asking us to learn to do this inside the family of God, that we lay our lives down for one another so that we can love each other. Am I making sense? You sound so enthused. <laughs> well, he talks about the, the glory of love here. Prophecy in verse 8, and speaking in tongues and special knowledge or words of knowledge will eventually become useless. When will they become useless? When the Lord comes back. We won't need prophecy when the Lord comes back. We won't need gifts of knowledge when the Lord comes back. We won't need spiritual gifts when the Lord comes back. It's all going to be a whole different venue when the Lord comes back for us. But love will last forever. We'll need love when the Lord comes back. So prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. For now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. Even when you have a spiritual gift of knowledge, it tends to be partial and incomplete. Even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when full understanding comes, when Jesus comes, these partial things will become useless. And then he gives an illustration. He says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. Then I grew up and I put away childish things. And what he's saying is, in comparison to what life is going to be like when the Lord comes back, or when, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Bible actually, I don't want to get out too far off in this. It's a little bit off the sermon. Uh, the, the, we all talk about dying, somebody dying and going to heaven. The Bible actually, if you get into the original language, uh, talks about you going to a place called paradise where you wait until the Lord comes back and sets up on this earth a place called New Jerusalem, and we all end up there. And when that all happens, if you read the book of Revelation, uh, you get that. When that all happens, then we would look at this life, no matter how mature you are as a Christian, and you would say, oh, I was like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I was immature like a child. Now I've come to the point of maturity. But Paul is asking us in this chapter to grow up as much as we can grow up and to live as mature as we can. And maturity isn't ranked by how much Scripture you have memorized or how much of you can parse a, 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 a sentence in the Greek New Testament so you can tell somebody what the Bible really, really, really means. What he's measuring maturity by is how well you 
do at loving people around you. And especially, because it starts out this way, loving people when they don't deserve to be loved. Loving people when they don't deserve to be loved. So he says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. When I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see imperfectly as if we're looking through a cloudy mirror. I've seen ancient Greek mirrors. I was in Corinth two or three years ago, and I saw ancient Greek mirrors. They were made of brass, and they were polished as highly as they could polish them. But the truth is, if you looked in a pond of still water, you saw your image much more clearly than when you looked in a mirror, no matter how, how highly polished it was. And so when he says, I, I, I see everything as looking in a cloudy mirror, then you understand what he's talking about. He goes, but then when the Lord comes back, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. And then he says this, three things will last forever. Three things you need to invest in. One is faith, two is hope, three is love. Faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sins and your shortcomings. Hope that tomorrow is going to be a better day because God somehow is going to take the mess that we're in and straighten it out. You know, sometimes I pray, and I, I actually would tell you, to be honest with you, I, I pray with more hope than I do with faith. And I think hope is a little more vague. You know, sometimes you just know that God's going to come through. Sometimes you hope that God's going to come through. Um, I, I remember hearing a guy when I was a, a really young pastor, and I was starting out, and I was, I, I, I used to, actually as a youth pastor, I used to go to all these pastor conferences and try to learn all these things from all these different guys. And, and one time I, I went to a conference and the guy said, you ought not to go to all these conferences where I speak. He was a conference speaker. He goes, what you ought to do is what I do. I get on my knees with my Bible when I got a problem and I, and I seek the Lord. And then he said an odd thing. And, 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 and there's no way in the world he could document this, but it, but it, it helped me a lot. He said, uh, he said only about 8% of the things that we worry about ever actually happen. Now, how did he know it's 8% and not 11 or 5.3 or, you know, it was a guess. But it stuck on me. And I, and, I, and I realized most of the stuff that I worry myself to a frazzle about never happens anyway. And so why not just trust the Lord? Why not expect the Lord to, to do something that I can't fathom? See, I, I was one of those people who when I would pray, I would always pray like this. And maybe you do this too. God, I got this problem here. Would you do this, or would you do this, or would you do this? Here's three options, God. You choose one of them. <laughs> Not fully recognizing that God might have about a million and a half options. He might have ways of coming through that, that I just can't possibly imagine. To me, hope is, is you know, faith it really comes down to sometimes you're praying and, and the Lord just shows you, I'm going to solve it and I'm going to do it this way. And you know it. And you walk in the circumstance and it happens exactly as the Lord has revealed it to you. That happens very rarely to me. Very rarely to me. And it'll happen very rarely to you, but it will happen. But hope is kind of a, I'm just putting myself at, at, in, in your hands, Lord. And I'm trusting you to make something that isn't good. Maybe you have some people that you love very dearly and they don't walk with the Lord and they used to. 
and you wish they did. You know, my wife was talking to me today, Facebook is such a cool thing for connecting people. And we're connected with a, a, a woman that we knew when she was 15 years old. And she found the Lord, and she had a profound impact on a whole bunch of people. Over 40 people found the Lord in one year because of this one young girl. And we're in contact with a whole bunch of them, and they are walking with the Lord. And this girl ended up becoming a missionary, and incredible things happened. And then her husband ripped her off and, and really, really, really wounded her. I mean, who, who would not be wounded if, you know, the kind of stuff happened to happen? And she's walked away. And somehow my wife's made contact with her through Facebook. And so today she just was thinking about a song that this girl used to sing when she was a young girl. And she'd heard somebody else sing the song, and so she just wrote her a letter, a, a little thing on her Facebook, and said, I heard this song today. And, that, and the professional singer who made a lot of money singing it can't hold a candle to you and your voice. Just a nice thing in hopes that it'll lead someplace positive and that it might end up in their relationship being a little part. You know, the Bible says one puts the seed in the ground, another waters the seed. And we know that somebody's put the seed in the ground, just watering the seed just a little bit, hoping that something good would come of it. Hope is kind of vague, but it's real. And so it says, these things are going to last forever. Faith, hope, and love. Love, the kind of love we're talking about. And then it says, the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is a the kind of love that says, you don't have to love me for me to love you. You don't have to love me. You know, I, I, I may need to get out of room for you to swing at me, uh, but you don't have to, to love me for me to love you. I, I, I'm going to still love you in spite of. In Philippians chapter 3, we're going to end up with this. Paul says this about himself. And this really is, makes it good, I think, this, this chapter. Because you could look at this chapter and you could turn it into legalism. You could turn this chapter into uh, just the opposite of what it is. That, that, that you could beat yourself over the head with a baseball bat because you're not loving enough. And Paul says this. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. I don't mean to say that I got it all figured out, but I'm pressing on to try to figure it out. When he says, I, I'm, I'm trying to possess that perfection for which Christ possessed me, he actually uses a word, if we could read it in the original language, He's going, I'm trying to reach out and get a hold of it like, like a policeman arresting somebody in exactly the same way that the Lord reached out like a policeman and got a hold of me and arrested me. He stopped me in my tracks and, 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 and got me going another way. I'm trying to get a hold of the love of God and make it work in my life in the same way. I want to possess that love in the same way that the Lord has possessed me. And, 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 and what, he, what he says is, I'm in process. I'm in process. And so, you know, you, you could sit here and, 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 and you could actually maybe turn on your spouse and go, aha, you're not loving like that. And your spouse could turn on you and go, aha, you're not loving like that. Or you could look in the mirror and you could go, I'm a wreck. I'm horrible. 
I'm, I'm nothing like what this, I, I'm just, I, I, it's, it's, it's just me, 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 I'm terrible. Paul's going, I'm, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all down. I'm preaching it, but I don't have it all down and worked out. I, I, what I'm telling you is I'm working on it. I'm in process. I'm working on it. And I think that's all that we can ask of ourselves, and it's all we can ask of the people around us, is that we stay working on it. If we stay working on it, uh, we're going to do really, really well. Am I making sense? Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you tonight in the name of your son, Jesus, and uh, we thank you that you loved us when we were unlovable. Lord, some of us, we came from some pretty hard circumstances. We were quite unlovable. And yet you sent somebody into our life because that's usually how it works. Another person came with the love of God and saw beyond what was there, saw beyond the surface, and, and, and began to love on us. And Lord, our prayer is that we would be missionaries of yours in this world, in our families, in our, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. Lord, that we would be emissaries of your love. And Lord, I think there isn't anybody in this room that would go, oh, I got that one knocked. I'm, I'm in control. I, I'm, I'm really good at loving everybody. But Lord, help us to be able to say like Paul, I'm still looking hard to, to possess that for which I was possessed. I want to love with the kind of love that was shown to me by God and that we would reflect your love toward other people. Let your grace rule and reign in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. I want you to keep your eyes closed for a moment. I just, I know that there, there's most often people come to church if, if you're new. Uh, there's a reason for you coming to church. Sometimes a family member invited you. You know, you might have even gotten sort of conned into come to church before the birthday party or something. I don't know. But most of us, when we come to church, uh, if we're not regular at this, we, we've come because we sense that there's something I need inside of me. Something's missing. And I'm, and I'm looking for whatever that something is. And I would say that that something is a God-shaped hole inside of your heart. A place that only God can fill. Only God can satisfy. And so here's the story of the Bible in very short, brief few moments. The story of the Bible is that God made us in his image, which means that we think like him, we have emotions like him, we feel stuff, we make choices, we have a will like him. In, in, in these ways, we're made in the image of God, the Bible says. And the Bible, the, the, the reason that we're created is to be in friendship with God. That's the whole deal. And the answer to why the world's such a cruddy place is what the Bible calls sin. And sin simply is that people turned their back on God and said, I want to do my thing instead of his thing. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. What that means is this, that God had a plan for your life and you probably were pretty much aware of it when you were about five years old and you started thinking of the kind of things that you would like to see happen in your life and it grew on you as you grew up and you start to have this sort of a life plan and then you went out and lived your life and you got nowhere near to what you're hoping for. I believe that what you believed was a reflection of God's plan for you. It wasn't all of it, because he's always got more. 
but you had a, a sense of this is what my life should be like. That's the glory of God worked out in you. But it says all have sinned. All turned their back on God, and so they fell short of God's glory in their life. Another place says the wages of sin is death. And when it says death, it doesn't mean you're going to drop dead this minute. What it means is that when you do die physically, you will go into eternity and be separated from God for eternity. And that isn't pretty. And then it says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the Son of God, who never sinned, came into this world to live a life and beat sin to death, really. He never sinned so that he could conquer sin by laying his life down as a, as a, a sacrifice for our life. And because of that, God could look at us and say, I'm, my son paid for you, I forgive you. And so I would like to lead you in a prayer. If you're sitting here and you're going, there's an emptiness inside of me, and I think only God can fill it, then you need to know that it's not just, oh, hi, God, I'm on your side now. It's that you're coming to God and saying, I want to accept what you did for me in allowing your son to pay the price for my rebellion toward you. If that's you and you'd like to pray and invite the Lord in your life, we're going to pray almost exactly as we just did. Uh, I prayed out loud, and everybody in the room prayed along with me, but they prayed silently. And so I'm going to invite you to pray silently. But if you want to pray with me and say, God, this is an invitation uh, for you to come into my life, and I'm accepting your invitation to come into your life, uh, I, I want what you have for me then I, I would like for you to tell me that we're going to pray together because I don't want to just stand up here and pretend I'm praying if nobody's praying with me. So if you want to pray with me, we're going to pray in, in, in just very about 30 seconds. But I want to know if you're praying with me. I'm going to count to three. And if you want to pray with me, I want you to tell me that you're praying. Everybody around you got their eyes closed. I want you to tell me that we're praying together by raising your hand. One, two, three. I see one hand, another, another, good. Okay, let's pray. Again, just pray silently, but pray these words. God, I, I recognize there's an empty feeling inside of me that won't go away. And I believe that you could fill it. That's really why I came here to church, because I'm looking for something. And so I want to give you the opportunity for your glory to be reflected in my life for my life to turn into something good, something that's pleasing, something that I can say I'm proud of having lived this life. It was worth it. And so, Lord, I, I open myself up to you tonight. If sin is walking away from you, then I want to do the opposite of that and walk toward you. I want to become your friend. And so I'm asking that you'd actually send your spirit to live inside of my mind and begin to communicate with me in my thought patterns that I would know, not a voice that I can hear with my ears, but I would know in my mind the voice of God beginning to just 
Bring peace first. First of all, Lord, bring your peace. Just bring quiet to my soul. And then begin to lead and direct and guide me. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would teach me through your word, the Bible. God, I would find places in it where I know that it was written thousands of years ago and millions of people have read it, but as it speaks, it speaks right to me. And let it change my life. Let it be transforming to me. And God, make this life of mine into something that's worthwhile. I thank you that your son Jesus died on that cross to cancel my rebellion toward you. And I accept your offer of forgiveness and freedom that comes with that. Lord, let your grace be poured out in my life. Let me become an agent of your love in this world. In the name of your son Jesus, I pray all this. Amen. It's good tonight, huh? God bless you all. Huh.